Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. If you believe in the underlying human dignity of every person, it's really important to not let cue a t-shirt, a post, a belief system, like that can't become the entirety of their identity, even if it seems like they are choosing that. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for a new episode of Pantsuit Politics. We hope that you enjoyed the How to Be a Citizen series. We also hope that we can all not be done with that series, that we can keep kind of going back to it and refreshing ourselves. I know for me, as I was preparing to talk about the weirdness of today's news cycle, it was helpful to remember I'm approaching this through my lens of citizenship, as we've just talked about. And so we are going to dive in to some key stories today about that weirdness. What's going on with TikTok? Why are all our friends and family sharing weird posts on Facebook and Instagram? And what's going on with Joe Biden's VP search. But before we do, 
Sarah, you want to welcome all of our hopefully new listeners and invite them to learn more? Yes, we have a weekly email on Fridays that go out. We share links. We share our thoughts. Other members of our team write sections. We have classifieds where you can learn about the community and some of their small businesses and services. We have listener emails. It's just a smorgasbord of amazing content that we put together every week for our community. We're really proud of it. If you'd like to sign up, go to pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And it's just a good introduction to not just the community, but all the different ways you can be in touch with Pantsuit Politics, whether it's our news briefs on Instagram or the Nightly Nuance on Patreon or our Facebook groups. You know, everything is kind of contained or talked about or linked to in this weekly email. And we hope that you'll sign up. This week is the week. We will finally learn what lucky lady (laughs) is going to be selected as Joe Biden's vice presidential pick. They're saying this week is when they'll tell everyone. I'm both excited and bored with this conversation all at the same time. Is that possible? Can I be excited and bored at the same time? I actually think that might be the perfect way to be. I am so annoyed with the lucky lady framework that has been set up by all of the commentary around this. I was so thrilled when Joe Biden said, yes, I will pick a woman. I will commit on the debate stage. I thought that was great. I love a yes or no answer to a yes or no question when it's merited. And in that situation, it was. And everything that's happened since has made me feel like perhaps I was wrong. (laughs) I'm still excited. No, I still want a female vice president. I'm a little less excited by some of the candidates who seem to be rising to the top that have committed not to run themselves. No, 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 no. The whole point of why this is a good idea is it gets America used (laughs) used to a woman in the executive branch, and then she can run for office and be our first female president. So I've heard that. The murmurings about Representative Karen Bass, and she said, I wouldn't run myself. And I'm like, no, I don't. I want somebody who's going to run. It seems like Tammy Duckworth is rising to the top. I would be so exceedingly thrilled if Tammy Duckworth um, was our first female vice president and our first female president, for that matter. So that seems a weird shift in the conversation to me. I don't know why they'd like that. And it's, you know, not surprisingly, as this search continues as the conversation continues. It just gives everybody a chance to, as my grandmother says, show their butts. Chris Dodd, who is a former senator, close friend of Vice President Joe Biden, has taken up sort of the lead in this search. And he said that Senator Kamala Harris wasn't seeming sorry enough about the way she attacked Joe Biden on the debate stage. There's some murmurings from his donors that she's too ambitious. And again, it's just, look, there was no way, I don't think, for this conversation, search, decision to flow free of patriarchy. So I think a certain amount of this to be is to be expected. And I'm pretty happy with the smackdowns that have come as a result of these moments. But I'm also just I'm ready for the decision to be made so we can build excitement about the candidate, so we can build excitement about the team, so we can go into the conventions with some momentum. I mean, I don't think it's going to be hard since clearly the Republican National Convention is barely happening. And I think we've because the Democratic Party chose to go ahead and go online. I think there's going to be a lot um, better prep and planning as far as how to present the convention in a totally new and different way. And with a with the first female 
Well, she won't be the first female candidate, Geraldine Ferraro, but the second and hopefully actually first female vice president. Well, I am still very excited about it being a woman. I absolutely want that. I have just wondered since if I was wrong to be delighted that he announced that from the beginning, where we had this all-woman process for people to write and think about. And to carry this thread to your point about someone who wouldn't run for president, the whole thread that's been carried through is that we are really uncomfortable with women who have that ambition. We are Mm -hmm. really uncomfortable with women who have vocally campaigned. I, I think that's a weird word to use about women who've just said, yes, I would serve, who also have answered a direct question directly. We're uncomfortable with the oh, idea. Oh, make sure no mistake, though. There's campaigning going on behind the scenes. They might be saying a simple yes or no question publicly, but there is hardcore lobbying going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. And there always is. It mm-hmm. just is being talked about as though it is more distasteful than usual, right. I think, because right. it's all women. Yep. That's that's grade A bullshit. I don't think there's any other way to say that, that all of a sudden this process that happens every time is all of a sudden, um, oh, there's too much ambition at play. I mean, <sighs> to play devil's advocate, I think there's been times in the past where we've had male candidates that were a little too ambitious that everybody kind of was like, ugh, John Edwards comes to mind. But it's both freeing in a weird way that they're all women. And so I think that you can both, you know, see the differences in the way that men are treated when there are men men in the selection process. And also, I do think there's like been some slight evolution, even though there's always lobbying behind the scenes. I think in the past, you've had candidates sort of play that, oh, well, I'd be happy to serve. I'm here for the fact that so many of the female candidates have been like, oh, no, yes, I sh- he should pick me. I would be a great vice president. <laughs> I think that's a great sort of honest and transparent and more authentic way to handle this process. And I think that that's come about largely because of the female candidates and the way they've talked about it. So, Sarah, has Tammy Duckworth overtaken Elizabeth Warren as your number one choice for the VP pick? I mean, I would still be absolutely thrilled if Elizabeth Warren was the pick. I think because of the racial reckoning, that would not be best for the party or for anybody else. I don't know. I think that... Uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms, Tammy Duckworth. I think those are probably the two, or Kamala Harris. Those three I would be really excited to see. I think they'd be great candidates, good picks, qualified, able to handle it, would be tickled pink if any of the three of those were the first female president. I mean, I guess that's my transparent authenticity about this process. I think it's important to think about how these women will serve as vice president. But my mind is, okay. well, this is going to be our candidate in four years. So that's what I care about. And I just think, like, I don't know why we would I don't really know why we're pretending otherwise. And so anybody that says, oh, well, I don't want to run in four years, like, no way. Does anybody want to go through that process again where it's an open field? Because I certainly do not. And so I think any of those. There really isn't anybody in contention that I'm not excited about who I wouldn't be thrilled to be the candidate. They all bring something distinct and special to the ticket and to any sort of future pursuits. It's just it also gives me great hope. It's a good listen. It's a good, deep bench. It's a really great selection of women, capable, thoughtful, intelligent, ambitious women that would be great 
leading our country and are great in the capacities they're currently leading. That, to me, is a salient point. There is not someone who has been reported to be seriously vetted that I wouldn't feel fine about and that I would certainly prefer to Mike Pence and that I would certainly prefer to Donald Trump. And so Mm -hmm. I'm not losing sleep over this process. The more I have watched, and I kind of started here, so I'm sure there's an element of confirmation bias. When I think about what are Joe Biden's great strengths, I do not worry about foreign policy, for example. I think Joe Biden is going to be terrific on the international stage because people know him and because he's been there before and because he is a very conciliatory human being. So I'm Mm -hmm. not worried about foreign policy. I'm not really worried about much of the executive branch because I think he's going to have such talent at his disposal. I think so many people from a variety of wings of the Democratic Party and probably some people who used to be Republicans will be clamoring to be part of a Biden administration. So I feel pretty good about the talent that he has everywhere. The place that in my mind is going to need someone who is incredibly aggressive and active moving swiftly and with a clear vision is the Department of Justice, which is why Senator Harris has really kind of solidified her place at the top of the list for me because of her prosecutorial experience, because of the committees that she served on in Congress. I think somebody is going to have to go in and get the Department of Justice in an ethical, well-run place where talented people want to continue serving. Uh, So I would love to see her in that role, but I'm but I'm going to be happy No, I mean, it's fine. Well, wouldn't you want her to be as attorney general then? No, I would actually, I think, rather have someone very because I think Vice President Biden is going to have someone so tied into him in that VP role. And I think the corruption in the Department of Justice has come because the president and this attorney general have decided this is an executive branch function. And I think that's wrong and it needs to be very independent, but I don't think it can be made independent again without that blessing and expectation being clear from the executive. So that's kind of my line of thinking. But again, I'm I'm just not losing sleep over it because I am confident that the administration that will be put together here will come together carefully. I will say this about Elizabeth Warren. I will be frustrated, nah, probably angry, if she is not given a prominent role in the administration. She does not need to be the VP pick, and I totally agree with the arguments that that is not the best role for her at this point in time. But I want to see her somewhere, somewhere prominent, like head of the Department of Treasury. You know, like I just, that to me, and that's true of honestly a lot of women on that list, just because they don't become the vice presidential pick. I hope that's not the end. I'd like to see. I mean, if he just wants to keep this going and have an all-female cabinet, I'm like not sad about that. That would be fine with me as well. I think something Senator Warren could bring to the administration that is desperately needed, as highlighted by the next story we're going to talk about, is a a bring America into the classroom uh, voice. To me, everything I read about TikTok indicates that we are just not fluent enough as regular citizens to participate as citizens in conversations like how do we interact with a business that has access to our phones, which means has access to our lives as they exist here in 2020. 
When we know that that business is super tied into the Chinese Communist Party, and we've got to have leadership around that that doesn't just tell us connection to China equals bad, uh, because one, that leads to really xenophobic actions that are not good for anyone. And two, it ignores the fact that our entire economy is really tied into China. So we need someone who can speak to us clearly about what this means, what the risks are, and what the call to action is instead of a president who just threatens to ban an app through an executive order. Well, I thought you were going to say say uh, that she should be like the anti-monopolies are. That's what I, I just let her loose. Let her loose on those four bros. They're not really bros. They're all too old to be bros anymore. Facebook, Google, Amazon, Twitter. No, it wasn't Twitter. Who was the fourth one that testified? Facebook, Amazon. It was Apple. Apple. Yeah. I just want Elizabeth Warren to be able to go after all these monopolies that are increasing income inequality, you know, just running wild and free without any regulation. And I hope we're really coming to the end of that era. And I would sure like to see her usher in the real finale there. And as far as TikTok, you know, I think I think you're right. This stuff is bigger and more complex than most people give it credit for. I do think that the Trump administration's policy towards TikTok is just a manifestation of the erratic, problematic, and not in any way, shape, or form strategic approach to China. He's all about President Xi Jinping when he wants to be, and then he's, you know, racist in the next moment. And, you know, our economy is wrapped up with China, no doubt. But I think this idea that China is this behemoth that we are, you know, powerless to stop is not true. I think that there are weaknesses in Xi Jinping's approach, and there were and continue to be opportunities to push back on China, to gain diplomatic advantages, to partner with this thing. Now, Beth, I don't know if you remember this from before Donald Trump, but there's this thing that we have. They're called allies. Have you heard of these? I have a vague memory. Mm -hmm. It's like this thing where we join with other countries to gain a strategic advantage in diplomatic relations with powerhouses like China, instead of just going it alone, saying, we're going to do this, we're not, we're mad at you, you're cool. We sort of join together with countries with similar interests to ours, as opposed to countries with dramatically opposed interests, such as China, Russia, or North Korea. And then we push our priorities forward so that we're not in a situation where hundreds of millions of Americans are freaking out because they're not going to get their dog videos. I'm not trying to be dismissive of TikTok. I have laughed along with TikTok. I think there's an argument to be made that TikTok right now is sort of the fun, free, light and breezy version of the Internet we all liked in the beginning of Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. Of course, now we know what happens in the end with platforms like this, but I don't want to be a Debbie Downer. And so I just think, you know, instead of this, well, there's a deadline. Well, never mind. I just, you know, this is just another example 
of this erratic approach to China. This is not the first time he's tried to take a hard line and then backed off. And it's just undercutting and undercutting and undercutting any momentum we build, any authority we have, any ability we could possess to really push our priorities when it comes to China. There are just so many things about this. I agree with everything that you said about the erratic approach to China and how important it is to engage with our allies with respect to China, how important it is to have some kind of coherent philosophy as to China that can not only be aggression because we are tied in and we do have some we do have some interests aligned with China. Nobody likes to say that, but the wealth of both countries depends largely on the other, at least right now. And so there there are reasons to work hard on that relationship cooperatively as well as bringing some some aggressive tactics to the relationship. I think the problem with this TikTok story is that I cannot imagine if a group of serious people got together around a table to talk about all of the ways in which the Chinese Communist Party has access to personal information of Americans in ways that form a threat that TikTok rises to the very top of that list. And I cannot imagine that if you were putting the entire scope of that relationship on the table for discussion, that TikTok rises to the top of that list as Mm. the priority. And then certainly when you think about everything America faces right now, we have talked for a few minutes here and have not yet said COVID-19, which is the dominant story still in our news cycle. Psychologically, if you go to the American public and you say, hey, I know that we've asked you to mostly stay at home and to uh, mostly wear a mask when you go out and to really limit your social contacts while we get this thing under control. Um, and also, I'm going to need you to put your phones down uh, because yeah. there's a privacy. I mean, we can't handle everything that's coming as human beings, especially when we don't understand the why of most of it. And ideally, if if TikTok really were the top priority, if this is really a clear present threat and you need people to delete it, you don't say we're going to ban the app, right? Maybe first you have this discussion behind the scenes with American businesses saying, anybody interested in buying this thing so we can get this sorted out? And or you do a campaign and you explain to people, here are the risks. These are ways to protect yourself better if you're going to use the app. This is how we recommend doing it. Now, I still think we're overwhelmed and can't handle something like that right now. But I feel like TikTok has become the story because the president doesn't like the way people criticize him on TikTok. The president wants a new headline and he knows this will grab it. And it is just another place where there are some right motivations in the administration's analysis. But the rollout feels so self-interested to me that I can't find where this ultimately translates to good policy. I mean, I'll be honest, if I'm creating the list of our concerns with China, top of my list is going to be the genocide against the Uyghur people, not TikTok. Exactly. If I really want to get in a fit, if I really want to get mad, I will think about our next subject matter, which is the proliferation of conspiracy theories across social media and within our social circles. These messages you know, calling for people to rise up, 
looking at all these clues and looking at all these hidden messages. And I just want to say, you know, you don't you don't need to look hard. There are drone videos and eyewitness accounts of the genocide of the Uyghur people in China going on right now, right now. And we have to deal with arguing with people about, you know, great acts of evil that are completely invented. And that is so crazy making. It's difficult to articulate. And I think, you know, I think crazy making is probably the best way to describe what's going on right now with disinformation and the conspiracy theories and how it's it's really um, bursting forth in all of our lives. Not that, you know, most of us or many of us weren't aware, but really seems like we're hitting a critical mass with this stuff right now. I ask on Twitter if you are noticing an uptick in people in your life posting about Tom Hanks actually having been under arrest because he is a pedophile or all of the trafficking that goes on and how child lives matter too and things like this. I would love to know what you think is behind that. And I got such interesting, rich answers, um, a flood of them, which confirms the email that we were already getting with people saying, like, what is going on? And, you know, it, it is all sort of related, I think. So I don't know that it ever makes sense, again, to talk about an individual video like the America's Frontline Doctors mm-hmm. um, or an individual account or post. But the trends to me are alarming. So the people in my life who tend to post this stuff are posting it much more frequently, all hours of the day and night, multiple bursts of these posts. I have noticed that some of these posts have gotten dressed up for social media, where we have mm-hmm. them feminized. Some real cute Instagram versions, let me yes, tell you. We have, a, we have a glamorized version of these posts now to make them more shareable, to make them warmer and friendlier, to bring them more into women's consciousness clearly. That is clearly mm-hmm. a goal right now. And those trends, I think, get us to what our listener said in response to my question, which is there are people in my life who don't like the way things are, who have always wanted to feel a little bit superior because they belong Mm -hmm. to something that they believe is better than what everybody else belongs to, who are looking for someone to affirm All of their life choices, especially those like voting for this president that have gotten a lot of criticism. And here we are in a space where if you post something about legitimate human trafficking now on the left, you're going to look like you're feeding into conspiracy, which is tragic uh, and terrible for the very real work that needs to be done around very real human trafficking that takes place in our world. And if you are on the right and you post about anything but those things, it must mean that you are complicit in what apparently they believe to be an incredibly pervasive global system designed to, you know, eat the heart and soul of every human. It's just it's 
It is crazy making, and it's hard to know how to even have a conversation because conspiracy theories, by definition, cannot be disproven, you know? And yeah. so it's it's anything that you do to push back, you take the video down, you comment that the, the information is false, absolutely anything that you do to push back feeds the fire. See, you're part of the they that don't want people to know this. I got into it. Couldn't help myself. I thought I had engaged in some really aggressive Facebook hygiene on my friends list about six months ago when I went back on Facebook because of online school groups. But a few snuck through and one post pretty continuously about this stuff. The thread I got involved in is because there was a Patton Oswald tweet. Patton Oswald, whose wife died tragically and left him a single father, you know, Patton Oswald, who helped the troll that was stalking him, raised $30,000 for his medical bills. Patton Oswald, who is in Pixar movies. I swear. I just, okay. I want to calm down. And so I got into it with this person in a comment thread. And the, I mean, one person literally said, I mean, all celebrities are all, not Tom Hanks, Chrissy Teigen, Patton Oswald, Sarah Silverman, all celebrities are pedophiles. And if you don't accept that, then you are defending them. And it's like, you know, I remember the good old days when we used to describe Social Security as the third rail of American politics. <laughs> and it felt like there were these places and these subject matters that you didn't touch, that we all understood that Democrat or Republican, as long as you were a human being, you cared about. And I think the reason... Abortion has always been so disruptive is because it feels like this should be a thing we all care about, babies, and it became this polarized topic. And now it's like everything is like that. There is no third rail. There's no subject matter. Why, how is it possible that we are in a conversation with other human beings about whether or not someone cares about the sexual abuse of children. I'm a mother of three. And the fact that I'm being told that, like, I just, it's mind boggling. Not because, you know, sexual abuse doesn't exist and it's obviously perpetrated by human beings, but it just felt like, no, surely we're all on board with the fact that we want this to end or stop. And that we want to prevent this as much as humanly possible. And I feel I, I feel a little bit about this the way about I feel about the frontline doctors. It's like now things that were supposed to be separate, medical treatments. I mean, I say that and I, my brain goes, of course, those were never separate. Of course, there were always highly politicized medical choices. I gave birth at home. Believe me, I understand that. But it just you can just. It's like seeing it in real time, right? Just seeing, watching something like a certain drug or, you know, just death certificates, just watching every subject matter, no matter how much lo logically you can tell yourself this is not a political topic and just watching it become infested with the polarization and the emotion and the partisanship, even with what we do, it's it never fails to sort of take my breath away. It never fails to leave me 
frustrated and angry. And I, you know, in the midst of all this, when we were off the last two weeks, we lost Representative John Lewis. And I've been thinking so much about him and watching President Obama's unbelievably eloquent and just touching eulogy of John Lewis. And I've been thinking a lot about nonviolence. And I've been thinking a lot about in the midst of all these terrible problems and disinformation and voter suppression and a global pandemic and systemic racism and on and on and on. What works? What actually works? And I think, you know, with nonviolence and you see the stories of John Lewis and Martin Luther King and Gandhi and they become these sort of individual heroes as they should be. At the same time, I mean, they those were two of the most successful campaigns in human history. People who had no power, who went out and did something that seemed impossible, impossible to evict the British from India, to go after the Jim Crow South. Like, and I just think I, I've really been thinking, like, what's the nonviolent approach? How do, how is the nonviolent communication work when you're up against somebody who says all celebrities abuse children. You know, like I I'm struggling. Like I can I can keep myself in check enough not to do the like you're just ignorant, you're just a jerk. But I don't know the next step. I don't know the you know the best next approach in that conversation in that moment to say you know to to use nonviolence or to use love to disrupt this toxic infestation of our conversations and our family members and our culture. I don't know either. I'm excited because one of the most prominent journalists on conspiracy has agreed to come on and talk with us about this soon. And I'm I'm really looking forward to that conversation and learning more. Everything that I read, and I have immersed myself in a lot of reading about this over the past two weeks, suggests to me that those of us who are concerned about this need to take a big breath and -hmm. recognize that that nonviolent approach, just like it's been for many other difficult causes, is a very long game. and. So I, you know, I popped in during the time when we were taking a little break as as we were sharing our How to Be a Citizen series to say this on Instagram. And I want to say it today. You know, it creates this feeling of urgency for me every time I see one of these posts. And that creates incredible decision fatigue, right? Because every time I see Mm -hmm. one, I feel the urgency of this is wrong and it has to stop. And I hate that this person feels this way because I love this person and I need to do something about it right now. And everything I read indicates to me that doing something about it right now is usually not a good choice and is usually a choice that feeds into where that person is. And doing something about it over the long haul might mean a lot of education and waiting for a very connected moment to talk about this. You know, being prepared for when there is a very connected moment to begin a conversation. Um, and And it might mean showing up in that person's comment section just to say, here's something I found that contradicts this, less for that person than for all the other people who click on that post. 
But I think that that we do have to have an attitude of gentleness with ourselves about this because the more aggressive we are in response, the more certain people will become. And the and the hardening of that certainty, not even around the individual details of what Q has posted lately or whatever, because they really don't care, right? People really don't care if part of it's wrong or some of it's logically inconsistent. The certainty is that what's happening now doesn't feel right to me. And so if we come slamming at them over and over on that fundamental emotional approach, I think we harden that feeling. Yep. And look, it's a fair feeling. I wake up every day during, what you know, 2020 and think, man, I can't believe this is happening. A lot of this doesn't feel right. I do wish there were like a decoder ring to help me understand where we are right now. And I do think there are incredibly powerful forces. We just had this discussion. The reason we have any concern about TikTok sounds like a wild conspiracy. It certainly would have to someone 30 years ago. So people trying to make sense of the world is normal. And I think the more we can begin with people trying to make sense of the world is normal and there are ways that they get manipulated in that process. And I care about that. Um, That will help us go through this very long-term exercise. If you believe in the underlying human dignity of every person, then it's really important, I think, to not let cue a t-shirt a post a belief system like that can't become the entirety of their identity even if it seems like they are choosing that even if it seems like they are choosing that as their entire identity i mean this is what you read about people who extract their family members from cults you know they just kept standing with the person connecting with the person and saying there's more to you than this identity and i love that person I don't love this, but I love you. And that's really difficult work. It is not everyone's work by any stretch of the imagination. But I think um, reminding ourselves that no matter how angry and frustrated we feel about these theories, no matter how toxic and racist and violent The theories themselves can become the people who believe in them, who support them, who spread them are still human beings. That's really, really hard. But the second we decide that they are less than human because they believe in conspiracy theories or because they spread Q or because they think Tom Hanks is a pedophile, then we are just as harmed by that belief system. You know, I think that and it's it's difficult, but, I, you know, I got into it with this same person on Facebook and she was basically like, well, I took all these classes and you wouldn't believe what babies did to what people would do to babies. I read about it in a textbook and I I did call on John Lewis and the people of the civil rights movement. I, I said, you know, do you not think that the people who were dedicated to nonviolence didn't understand the harm that came to children due to the system that they didn't witness it, not through textbooks. 
but in their own lives. With the mutilated body of Emmett Till and on and on. Like to think that you are the only person in history that cares about violence towards children, that other people didn't experience that in a much more profound way than post on the Internet and shows a nonviolent path of resistance that shows community and collective action to make the world a better place. Like, I just I think we have to push because I think to me, the place to to do that is this is to is this idea that other people don't care or that these people are the the righteous members of the army at this moment in history as if there weren't risks to children at other moments in history as if it weren't journalists as if it weren't the mass media who uncovered the abuses of the catholic church the spotlight team in boston or the miami herald reporter who pushed and pushed and pushed that chair that story with jeffrey epstein and the victims themselves the idea that the victims themselves weren't out there publicly pushing for justice. You know, I just think that those reminders and that not because it's you're trying to reason, but you're just trying to illuminate <laughs> to just even a little bit widen the view and say, hey, everyone cares about this. People work on this. People dedicate their lives to this. And. I know it feels like an uphill battle, and I think staying connected with people so you can continue to, like you said, in those moments of deep connection, say, hey, uh-uh, I care about this. People care about this. This is what we know to be true about how we learned about injustices in other parts in human history, about how we fought against those injustices in other parts in human history. But, man, it's so overwhelming and frustrating and takes a level of patience and love and grace that seems superhuman at times. And you don't have to have that every day. Some days the Mm -hmm. best thing to do is just scroll by it because you don't have that and you're not up for it and that is okay. It will be there tomorrow Mm. and the next day and some version of it will be with us always and has always been with us. And that helps me to remember too, we have believed some bizarre things in groups throughout our history. And so we're going to keep talking about this. I know there are a million dimensions of it that you all want to hear about that we've not touched on yet. We will. We'll keep coming back to it, too. For today, I think taking a breath and drawing inspiration from people like Representative Lewis, from that moving call to action from former President Obama, there are many, many ways to center yourself for the long haul here. And another piece of centering ourselves and coming back to that how to be a citizen framework is thinking about this incredible celebration coming up of women receiving the right to vote in this country. On August 26th, it will be the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which granted women the right to vote. Look, I'm a women's history minor. It's my thing. I love it. Little baby middle school Sarah used to hang up posters for Women's History Month because I didn't feel like my school was doing a sufficient job for Women's History Month. So I'm all in on the celebration. I'm super sad that the pandemic has disrupted so many in-person events, but we thought we could at least lend our platform to help our community share 
what this momentous centennial celebration means to them. And so we asked several members of our community to share what suffrage means to them. And up first are our beloved sisters, not Beth and I sisters. Although, yeah, just not biological, Um, but sisters to each other, Maggie and Katie. Hi, my name is Maggie Penson, and I live in Titusville, Florida, and I'm here with my sister. Hi, I'm Katie, and I live in Bristol, Tennessee. And we are here to share just a few thoughts on what women's suffrage means to us in honor of the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. One quote that summed up a lot of our feelings was from the writer Sarah Vowell in her book, The Partly Cloudy Patriot. Look up the word suffrage in the dictionary. In mine, after noting the main meanings, the privilege of voting, and the exercise of such a right, the third interpretation of suffrage is this, a short intercessory prayer. Isn't that beautiful and true? For what is voting if not a prayer? And what are prayers if not declarations of hope and desire? And more than just voting as a prayer and a declaration of our hopes and desires, we also feel very much that voting is something that you do. If voting's the prayer, prayers are incomplete without following them up with action. And so the actions that we think are important, in my case, uh, I help as a poll worker, and that's a very important way to make sure that we get to ensure access to voting for as many people as possible. One way that I like to express my love for our democracy is to help support candidates that I care about, both in local and national elections. My husband and I have spent a lot of time canvassing and doing kind of get out the vote sorts of efforts. And one thing that that has really changed for me in my perspective of what it means to vote and what we're doing when we vote is that when we vote, sometimes we think that that is enough and things are going to change just because of our elections. And elections definitely matter. Um, But they're also just one step, kind of like our voting is a prayer and helping other people vote is kind of making that prayer a little stronger, um, supporting our elected officials and recognizing that the work of making our governments work is not just a sweeping thing that we can fix overnight. Uh, that's something that I have feel like I've been learning over and over again, especially uh, going through this coronavirus pandemic. What we both wanted to say too is that the best way to honor the sacrifices and effort of people who made voting possible for women and uh, and then all the other groups that have fought for the right to express their hopes at the ballot box is to just keep doing the work, no matter, you know, whether or not we get the outcome we want, we have to put it in. Uh, We have to put the time and the effort in. Thank you, Maggie and Katie. We have so many more of these to share with you over our episodes. And uh, so please know that there's going to be something refreshing to look forward to. Hopefully we'll capture the complexity of this anniversary as well. The racism, the accompanying um, classism, there are all kinds of things. This, like anything else, is messy. Uh, But it is also uplifting to think about a change that was needed and made and inspiration for further changes that are needed to be made. Next up, we are going to talk about COVID-19 and our country's response to it. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is 
bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Our listener Liz sent us an article by Joseph Osmundson and Patrick Nathan, entitled COVID-19 and the Limits of American Moral Reasoning. And when Liz sends us something, we take that really seriously. We both read the article and we're like, oh, yeah, we're going to have to talk about it. We shared it on Twitter. We hope most of you got a chance to read it. It's pretty dense. Listen, it's not a light and breezy read. It's very philosophical. And it really, I think, breaks apart the way that we have talked about the pandemic, the way we have treated our response to the pandemic and where that has worked and where that has failed. The foundational principle of this article is we talk about COVID in the language of war. And as you read it, we talk about everything in the language of war. Everything Mm -hmm. is a battle. There's an enemy. We're going to dominate it. 
We're going to win. So we say, if it's not a war, it's a competition. Yeah. (laughs) Those are your choices. Team sports or war. And the authors first make the point that this is a war we were destined to lose. And I just want to read a little bit to you because I think this gives you a good framework for the rest of the piece. That's not because we lack the resources necessary to implement the non-pharmaceutical interventions, distancing, mask use, hand washing that we know work. It's because a virus, the supreme agent of mass death in human history, will never be dominated. COVID-19 can't currently be beaten. It can only be lived with. A new rhetoric of care, empathy, and respect for life is needed to face COVID-19 and survive. A rhetoric of care to be encoded in how we speak, but also to transform the institutions and cultures that make our nation run. From our healthcare and educational systems to our economy, our military, and our impulse to over-policing. Even when we want to help or to survive, it is too easy to let the rhetoric of war occupy our hearts and minds. See? To deploy violence glorifying metaphors to speak of viruses ourselves and our nation. War has failed us. Consequently, we have failed the world. What America needs now is care, not war, spoken in our words and enacted in our policies. I think this reflects our obsession with duality, right? That we want this or that, good, bad, moral, righteous, or evil. And that's why we, every situation, every challenge has to be put through the filter of this sort of black and white either or choice, because that's the way we sort information. I think it's our individualistic culture contributes to that. Capitalism and consumption contributes to that. We're not good in those messy, complicated spaces where there might not be a simple good guy or a bad guy. And I think that overwhelming desire to filter the world through that prism where we know what's good and what's bad and whose team we're on, um, whose side we're fighting for, and where we can place our moral righteousness. It's just, it's so strong. I mean, truly, it harkens back to our conversation we just had. I mean, that's what happens with these conspiracy theories. It gets people a chance to take a very complicated, messy situation and put it through this prism. Well, don't worry, we're soldiers and we're heroes and we're going to win. And this is what you do. X, Y, Z, easy peasy, moving on. Because that's an, I mean, I want to say it's an easier, I'm not sure if it is an easier way to understand the world. I find it much more empowering when there is a spectrum (laughs) or a sort of non-dual, paradoxical, gray way to understand what's happening, but I understand that I'm usually the minority in that in that desire. And I just think that's what you see. I mean, that's why we, the desire to put that moral filter on every experience, be it fighting a global pandemic or a cancer survivor or a team sport. I mean, you'd name it, we do this. The article makes the point that we are doing this particularly with other humans throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. So we talk about healthcare professionals and essential workers like they're heroes. Mm -hmm. And even though uplifting those people and recognizing what they're doing is certainly important, when we call them heroes, 
The article says that we transform them into a they. It is dehumanizing. Even as it's uplifting and and positive, that's our intention, it is still dehumanizing because it makes these people a they whose self-sacrifice saves us. We're doing this to teachers, right? We're talking about teachers and the the huge spectrum of concerns that teachers have as they think about online education, in-person education, some combination. There's an enormous spectrum of concerns there. There are no good options available from anyone's perspective around school. But I think we're talking about teachers as a they and how the the us, non-teachers, need those teachers to sacrifice in some way so that we can have some semblance of normalcy in our lives. And that's unhealthy. And they also talk about on that virtue point that you were making, Sarah, how we assign virtue to health, just like we assign virtue to wealth. And when we think of staying well as virtuous, then we're getting comfortable with casualties in the same way that we get comfortable with casualties of enemies in a war. They, they say it's not a moral failing to get sick, but an unjust society is at fault when it refuses to take accountability for a social phenomenon like illness, shifting that accountability to the society's least privileged and most exposed members. So when we think about people just as individuals staying healthy, having access to the resources that you need to do that, being able to make the choices in order not to get COVID, and we we talk about sickness as a moral failing, it makes us comfortable with a huge variety of things that are really examples of us laying down our responsibility to each other. Yeah, and I've never met a healthcare professional or a soldier or a teacher who said, oh, man, I just love all that hero worship. Like there, So many people are profoundly uncomfortable with that treatment. People want gratitude, and that's not hero worship. That's different. Putting someone up on a pedestal and treating them as different and better than you, it, it creates a really fertile environment for shame, I think, because nobody's perfect. And people don't want to think of themselves as superior, most people, to other human beings. And it just creates this, you know, especially if there are lives on the line with healthcare workers and with soldiers, where you have survivor's guilt and just this very toxic mess. And what people want is to be seen and heard and appreciated, not worshipped. And like you said, the flip side of that is if we are creating someone to worship, we are also creating a group to shun. You know, it's the 30th anniversary of the ADA, and there are some really powerful discussions about how far we've come when it comes to the treatment of people with disabilities and how far we have left to go. And this morality that we attach to health and ability is so toxic And so terrible and is not serving anyone. It's not serving anyone. And I wish that we could, you know, I don't think letting go of this desire to moralize is is a, a realistic goal or coming anytime soon. But even if we can just bring some awareness 
to our intense desire to put moral value on things, thinness, health, wealth, just choice. You know, there's this moralness of like, if you can choose to do, if you have the privilege and resources to make choices, then, you know, your ability to exercise those choices comes with some sort of inherent moral value. And if you can't make choices, that's because you've put yourself in that situation. Sort of this like, there's this moral display, I feel like when it comes to like free will and individuality. And again, like, I don't quote Dr. Phil a lot because <laughs> I think he does his fair, own fair amount of moralizing. But like, is it working? Like, are we happy with how it's going with particularly this intense manifestation of this approach when it comes to the global pandemic? Because I think also this idea that it's war and we're making war on it is it puts it on this linear timeline. It it orients us to a space Despite the fact that war doesn't work like that anymore either, where there will be this end date and we'll have one and it will be over. And it's like, it's not going to be like that. This is the this is a new reality. And maybe if we could let go of that timeline and just take a breath and care for ourselves where we are right now, instead of obsessing about where we want to be, we could find more energy and innovation and empathy as we take this journey together. So I was thinking about how we take this journey together if we don't have that language of war that we default to so quickly. Like, what fills that vacuum? Because even in my own life, after I read this article, I started noticing my own vocabulary picks up so many of those phrases that really are centered in violence and power over another person instead of power with another person. Casually, you know, we'll just talk about things that are really centered in war. And so what fills that vacuum? And I realized this is where we really need the philosophers to come alongside the public health folks in talking with us about an ethical framework, because I think the moralizing has gone both ways with COVID-19. You know, there there is the moralizing of my freedoms, my rights, my choice. There is the moralizing of, no, you must wear a mask. Like, we're all we're all doing the same things, just to different ends. And so we all need something new to do. And I think the reason that we're failing so terribly to contain and live with COVID-19 is because we don't have a shared framework about what to do when difficult decisions that involve conflicting, complex ethics are in front of us, which is what happens all the time, but we don't talk about it that way. And we don't talk about prioritization and we don't talk about our philosophy. I think if I'm really honest about our history, I think America has probably been uh, pretty utilitarian in our ethical philosophy. That's sort of Jeremy Bentham, the, the greatest good for the greatest number that you learn about in high school history classes. Um, except that I think the greatest good for the greatest number has another phrase behind it, which is like the greatest good for the greatest number of white, fairly wealthy people. And I think that's how we've made a lot of our decisions. And that's our tendency to make a lot of our decisions. What are other frameworks? You know, how could we really do the greatest good for the greatest number around COVID-19? 
how could we adopt a principle of doing no harm around COVID-19? That to me is the easiest way to make your personal decisions, thinking of doing no harm. So I don't know what the benefits of wearing a mask are in really concrete terms, but if it helps me do no harm, that's an easy choice. I mean, I think the hard truth is when people hear philosophers, a substantial portion of the American public roll their eyes. I sent this to a friend and she was like, why should I care about these elites staring out the window wondering how, you know, healthcare could be better if they're not trying to solve the problem on the ground? You know, I think that there is a, a resistance to bigger theoretical conversations. Let's be honest. That's why people hated Barack Obama, some people, because they felt like he was cerebral and he was having these lofty conversations when they had real-life problems that need to be solved. And so I think before we can even set up an ethical groundwork or a framework with which to approach these decisions, we have to push back against the idea that this isn't a worthwhile conversation to have to begin with. Unless, you know, the only, for so many years in America, the only framework with which you could have a conversation about ethics was through religion. And it wasn't a conversation. It was edicts and rules. It was that we're going to tell you what to do. And a lot of people were really comfortable with that. That's why you see that moralizing. That's why you see the good guys and the bad guys. Just tell me who's good and tell me who's bad and tell me what rules to follow. And outside of that, I'm not sure we had big ethical, moral, philosophical conversations about this stuff. A lot of people don't want to have those conversations. A lot of people don't care about philosophy. And to me, you know, with my friend, I said, hey, that's fine. But somebody has to be having them. We don't have to, you know, I don't think that philosophy has to be a part of every dinner conversation in, the, in America. But I think it has to be a part of the conversations somewhere. I think that, you know, even if we say, this isn't for everybody to, this isn't a conversation everybody has to have, but it is one that needs to take place. And sometimes it's going to take place among elites. And sometimes it's going to take place in a country song. Like there's lots of places for philosophy in art and culture and, so, and society. But until we say we're going to stop looking for rules and start asking questions of each other, we're going to stop looking for the bad guys and the good guys and trying to sort, stop trying to sort each other in teams and start saying, how do we problem solve together? I think that's going to be really hard. I think that's this is a bigger cultural shift than we hope. I just think it's it's a big, big shift. A lot of it is because it's consumption and convenience, and those are the idols we really worship in our country. We want things quick and easy, sorted into good and bad, and I don't want a lot of effort. I don't want a lot of confusion. I don't want to have to sit with tension or discomfort. Um, boy, howdy, is COVID-19 disrupting all those preferences? It would be helpful to interject some of this, though, as we can, and not in the most high-minded terms that we can think of as, as humans. I agree with you that not everybody wants to sit around and talk about you know, different frameworks throughout time that philosophers have generated. But but. But we're doing that when you have a person who says things like, I mean, it's really only a big risk for the elderly. And those are folks who are near the end of life anyway. That is a philosophical choice that they're making. 
And I think it would be better to give them language to be able to say that out loud, because right now a lot of people don't want to say that, right? They think that's that's socially incorrect and they're going to be shamed in some way for it. And I do not feel that way, but I am willing to have a discussion because the truth is right now, all the decisions that we make carry some risk and we are constantly deciding who we're going to ask to bear that risk. That is certainly the school conversation. Mm -hmm. That is certainly the school conversation. It is the conversation about bars. You are deciding who in our society you're willing to ask the most of. And I would love to have some words around that that are not the words of war, but that are the words of risk calculation and that are the words of ethics that talk about, you know, what it is that we think is the most just outcome in any particular situation. I don't, because we roll our eyes, we don't hear a lot about what is just, what upholds people's autonomy and dignity, what responsibilities accompany our rights. And like, we just need that resurgence of earnestness, I think, to ask those questions and to normalize those questions instead of being so cynical, because that's where I think the language of war has done the most damage to us. The language of war is what makes you roll your eyes, because you've already decided that everything is a zero-sum situation, and somebody's going to get hurt, and the strongest is going to survive, and, you know, cowboy up, because here we are. I think it's hard because that is so instinctual. It's not like we made this up in the 20th century, you know, like this idea that it's us and them and we fight for our survival. It's what human beings have been doing for so long. And I think the frustration and discomfort and tension and real crises we're facing is I, I do think we Truly, because I'm an eternal optimist, I do think we are evolving into something different. But that doesn't come without growing pains. And I think really where the the analogy of war has totally fallen apart is because it's not even what war is like anymore. It's like war in the movies. We don't have any conversations about war in real life. We don't have any conversations as Americans about What do we want our presence overseas to look like? If we don't want to be in the Middle East, what is our responsibility to the bases there? You know, this pulling 12,000 troops out of Germany and leaving NATO in a more vulnerable position. How do we feel about that? You know, I like to think of myself as a person that's informed and educated and thinks about war. And still, you know, I listen to... Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History, he just did a short series about the bombing of Tokyo and napalm. And there was so much I didn't know. And so much I don't think we talk about or think about as Americans. So it's not just that we're using uh, the language of war in situations where it's not suited. We're using a language of war that doesn't even apply to war anymore. I think that's right. And I also just want to say to the point that this is what human beings have always been doing. I think that's true of some human beings, but there are certainly non-dominant cultures who have 
framed their lives differently. They're non-dominant because they haven't acquired as many resources because that struggle for resources is usually what creates the language of war permeating your vocabulary. And 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 yes, everyone has an instinct for survival and nature is brutal. But I do think there are examples of societies that built themselves around a different ethical framework that is not so driven by hierarchy. And we just don't know a lot about them because it it's hard enough to know about our own history um, and every detail of it. And some of what I think we're contending with is being overwhelmed by knowledge to the point that we really seriously question uh, where that knowledge is coming from and what the agenda behind putting it in front of us is. I think there are so many opportunities right now to get clear about what we're talking about. And and that's what I would love to see us do, just to get back to a really like pragmatic takeaway from this article. It encouraged me to think like when we're having these conversations, I, I want to be more honest about the risks and the trade-offs, even behind the things that I'm advocating for. Like I think it's important. My my personal feeling right now about school just to get to what I know is a pain point for so many of our listeners. My personal feeling about school is that we ought to stop moving back the date for school to start because there is not going to be a date where the conditions are perfect. And keeping that hanging over our heads, I think, is is not serving us. And I think probably, given the numbers that exist today, we ought to all start virtually. As much as I want my kids back in school, and I do. As much as I want my kids back in school, I think we probably ought to all start virtually and then gradually reintroduce as we are able to. But as I say that, I want to be clear about how that is going to be hard for my family and my family has damn near perfect conditions to make it work. And that puts a ton of people at risk for neglect, child abuse, getting behind in their studies. That is so much harder on older kids than it is on some younger kids. That is so impossible for single parents. And I don't hear a lot of people when they advance their position being willing to say, here are all the problems with my position. But I think if I can start doing that and more of us can start doing that, it could open the door to some of these conversations where we say, "Okay, well, then which of these risks are we willing to live with for a while? Which of these horrible paths could we pursue? And can we have some grace for the decision makers? Because you and I are two reasonable people who certainly don't see the whole picture. And we have a lot of tension here. So imagine what it must be like to be a superintendent right now. I just keep coming back to that moment in Brene Brown's book where she says, I have to believe everybody's doing the best they can. And she gets into it with her husband and her husband says, I don't know if I believe that, but I know my life is better when I do. And I just think it's so hard right now. But, you know, I'm trying to lean into the ethics and philosophy of approaches that have worked like nonviolence, or that have worked for me in my life, like the belief that everyone is doing the best they can. And it is hard, and I feel myself bumping up against the outer limits of my own personal grace reserves (laughs) and my own personal patience. But, you know, it's just like 
It's a muscle. It's getting sore with use. And I like to think that it's going to be stronger with every passing month, with every passing year, and my ongoing existence in this new reality. And I think maybe a good way to end is with a paragraph from the article that Liz sent us. In quarantine, you might be all by yourself, but through that act, you prove that you know you're not alone, not in your community and not on this planet. This is a critical distinction. Quarantine is a social act, not a personal sacrifice. Everything that we're doing right now is a social act, more than a personal one. And I think the more we talk about it that way, the better decisions we'll make. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, 
Whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast 15. Sarah, what is on your mind outside of politics? Well, right now it's quarantine because I went to South Carolina for a week with my children and my parents. We do not engage in any social behaviors except for one meal outside the house. But I'm trying to get tested and follow the guidelines. And it is, it's stressful. It's, you know, it's just like you said, it's a really hard reminder to constantly be focused that it's a social act and not just a personal sacrifice. But it was really nice to be away. It still felt different, even though this is a place I've been many times over my life. All this, like, it's a pretty socially distant uh, vacation to begin with, but you still, there were differences in the time of coronavirus and coming back and my house is still torn apart from our bathroom renovation and we have school in theory starting in three weeks. It just feels like a lot at one time right now. And I'm just trying to take it day by day. I did read a lot of good fiction while I was away, including Beach Read, which was just cannot recommend it enough. A total and complete delight. I think I'm a little bit in love with the love interest, Gus Everett. Uh, it's a sad thing that he's a fake person, but I love him just the same. So I, it was nice. It was a nice break. How was your break over the last two weeks? It was fine. I was just at home and I felt good because I found a medium mode that I've never been good at. I've told myself a lot that when you're off, you really need to be off. You know, don't do anything like really let your brain come out of it. And that just was not available to me for so many reasons, including the fact that I'm at home with my kids all day here in the house, mm -hmm. not able to go a lot of places. And so I was really happy that I checked my email, did the handful of work things I needed to do. I did not completely unplug, but I also felt like I was off and I, I did some projects and I said yes to a lot of things my girls wanted to do. And I spent a lot of time outside and in my kitchen. Um, and so it was really a nice, gentle two weeks for me. I did not put a bunch of pressure on myself to accomplish a lot, uh, but I also did not come back to a big pile because I had stepped so far away. And that really worked in this time. It's something that if I had told myself about a year ago, I wouldn't have believed, but it really worked for me. Probably the best content I took in during this period, there were two things. I spent a lot of time with Jill Lepore's The Mansion of Happiness, which is one of our uh, book club selections. I can't wait to talk with you about that book more, Sarah. It, it has really helped me kind of restore a sense of like, okay, people believe some kooky things. That's that's part of what we do as people, and that's fine. The other thing I have loved, though, on a very different note, is The Babysitter's Club on Netflix. Those books I loved. I loved, loved, loved them. Netflix is so right on its demographics of like the age of people who are going to be excited about this. My girls absolutely love them. I cannot believe how beautifully translated those books are to the modern era and how skillfully the show is taking us through really hard issues in completely age-appropriate ways. 
Marianne's character is so beautiful and complex, and both of my girls love and identify with her so much, which is a gift. There is an episode about Marianne caring for a transgender child, and the episode never uses the word transgender and so normalizes and creates a lot of softness around how kids can understand that kind of shift in a person. It's it's amazing. I mean, it's just brilliantly done. I have no criticisms of it. And my girls like it so much that Ellen, who is five, said, hey, we should save some of these. I don't want it to be over. Oh, I love that. Want we'll to check it out? I wonder if my boys would like it. I bet they would. Um, I was going to say to your to your media mode. I am jealous. I also have the. I'm always feel like I need to be all in or out all out, and I think you're right. Finding a middle zone is helpful. I've really leaned into the one of my favorite phrases that I'd kind of forgotten about, and then from the recesses of my mind, it sort of bubbled up. It was an interview I heard with Bonnie Raitt, and I actually think she was quoting somebody else, but she said, you can only go as fast as the slowest part of you can go. And I think that that can be a real guiding light right now. You know, I want to be able to plan. This is something I hear just just <laughs> it is like a a from the recesses of the soul sort of crying out <laughs> among my friends particularly moms right now just i want to plan <laughs> i want to be able to plan anything and you know it's just not available to us right now and it, when you put so much of your identity and so much of your stress management into the capacity to plan and strategize and clean and sort, and that's you can't do it. You just can't do it for a lot of reasons, either because it's not available to you or, again, because you can only go as fast as the slowest part of you can go. And I've really been trying to remind myself of that. And the break was a good chance to just let the slow, the slow parts lead right now. I'm on the board for an organization called Beach Acres Parenting Center. It's wonderful. And I've had a couple event, of events. Sarah, you participated in one for parents where we get on a Zoom call with a parenting coach and just talk about what's going on. And the parenting coach helps us. And in both of the events I've done recently, there's been this moment where Christy, the parenting coach, has said, look, you just got to go to bed at the end of the day knowing you did a good job. Because you loved your kids. That's it. That's the only requirement. You loved your kids. Maybe you raised your voice. Maybe you deviated from the schedule. Maybe you let them eat junk. Whatever it was, you did your best and you love your kids. And that's how you go to bed satisfied at the end of the day. And there's like a physical release for me in that. And I think that that's helping me because I, too, want to plan. But when I think about why I want to plan, it's because I feel like good moms plan. And I want to be a good mm -hmm. mom. And I feel like competent adults have all their shit together, and I want to be a competent adult. And that's just not on the table. It's just not available right now. And so I am finding so much comfort in Christy's idea that I can't plan. I can't get it right today. I love your Bonnie rate. I love her, and I love that you bring it up. 
the slowest part of me is pretty slow right now. And I can still go to bed satisfied because I love my people and I'm doing my best. And some days my best is like not great, (laughs) but I still love my people and I can be satisfied in that. And it just helps me tremendously. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. May you all offer yourselves some grace and some love and let the slowest part of you set the pace. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tim Miller, Tiffany Hasler, Joshua Allen, David McWilliams, Allie Edwards, Martha Brunitsky, Amy Whited, Janice Elliott, Sarah Ralph, Barry Kaufman, Jeremy Sequoia, Lori Ladau, Emily Neasley, Allison Luzader, Tracy Putoff, Jared Minson. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.